Mark McClellan is the founding director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. He is a world-renowned physician and economist who has researched outcomes-based reimbursement and real-world evidence evaluation models for new medicines. Dr. McClellan is the former administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and commissioner of the FDA. He was a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institute, where he was the director of health care innovation and value at Dr. McClellan. It's truly a pleasure to see you this morning. Dwayne, thanks for taking the time. It's great to be on with you. You have a lovely office here on Pennsylvania Avenue, smack dab in the middle between the White House and the Congress, right across from the Trump Hotel. It's uh, ground central, isn't it? It is central for uh, Washington policymaking, and a big part of our center's mission is having an impact on bringing good evidence to bear on challenging uh, health policy questions. We also have a big office down at uh, Duke University in Durham. Um, We're a health policy center, but we're a university-wide program, and our office is there actually based in the business school. It kind of reflects the importance of different kinds of disciplines, uh, public policy, medicine, nursing, um, law, business, all working together to solve the problems that we're facing in healthcare. And, and you're a triple threat, as they say in basketball, because you, you come, not only you're a physician, and but you're also an economist, so you understand both sides of the balance sheet, as it were, in health healthcare. Well, we're trying. Uh, the the One of the nation's biggest challenges and opportunities is the opportunities around improving health and medical technology. On the one hand, science is making more improvements in quality and length of life possible than ever imaginable before. We could be uh, curing uh, genetic diseases within the next five years. Uh, Amazing progress on cancer, potential in Alzheimer's disease and other areas. But with these technologies, which people are willing to pay a lot for, have come a lot of increases in healthcare costs to the point that uh, I do have concerns about the public resources that are available for other things that influence health and well-being of populations, uh, education spending, uh, spending to help young children in vulnerable circumstances um, uh, develop into healthy young adults, um, infrastructure, ability to help people retrain into new jobs. There are only limited um, uh, resources out there. And as we have more potential in healthcare, we got to be more careful about how we spend those resources and, too. And I've got a bunch of questions here. I'd love to dig into on those specific <laughs> things, but but first, you know, the Duke Margolis Center. You are as an institution seen as the thought leader globally in healthcare policy, particularly related to using new evidentiary models, et cetera. How, how did Duke, and particularly the Duke Margolis Center and, and you as the director, how did you guys find yourself at the center of this? How did this occur? Well, it was a unique set of circumstances. Uh, One key part was Duke University's willingness, and it's really in the the DNA of the institution, uh, to take on broad, multidisciplinary problems. Duke really sees itself as training not just the next generation of technical leaders in engineering or big data and AI sciences or, or clinical medicine, but training the leaders who can put those skills together with those of other disciplines to solve really hard social problems. And as I was saying a minute ago, some of the most challenging that we're facing now are around uh, access to and affordability of, of, of health care and improving population 
population health. The other key part was our founding donor, um, Dr. Bob Margolis, is a Duke alumnus who has really dedicated his career to getting more value in health care. He started a uh, uh, physician-led health care organization that basically took on accountability for health care costs and outcomes for their populations uh, decades before the term accountable care organization sure. had ever come along. And so built into his philosophy that he wanted to bring to um, the, the mission of the center was this notion of trying to get the maximum value for the, the spending, the resources, the effort that we put into health care, whether that's in developing new medical technologies as efficiently as possible possible and the regulatory policies that could uh, facilitate that or using treatments as effectively as possible through new payment models that um, focus on value, not volume. Essentially, the time to market is a huge driver of cost. It's taking what was seven years, five years ago. It's now getting up to 11 years in a lot of indications. 51% of the cost of development, if we go by the Tufts research is gospel, 51% is working capital, financing failure. Real-world evidence has the opportunity to try and help accelerate that, which could potentially help the entire value chain. We have breakthrough, sure, but how could we use real-world evidence to make this not just for the first mover, like a breakthrough designation, but perhaps increase or accelerate the value chain for everybody? What would that do, first off, and is it even possible using real-world evidence? Definitely it's possible, and there are a whole set of steps, and maybe we'll have time to talk about others, too, that can make that uh, development process more efficient while still assuring safety and effectiveness. You mentioned the some of these um, high average numbers for time to development and size and cost of clinical trials that Tufts has mentioned. But there's a there's a wide variety around that. And there are a lot, I think a growing number of successful examples in areas like cancer care and the like, where um, the trials have been uh, much shorter, the development time much less, getting a patients much more quickly um, with, with lower development costs as, as a result. And I do think that the real world evidence can help with that. A lot of people view maybe a role of real-world evidence as helping to answer questions about safety and effectiveness that are just really hard to address before a treatment actually comes to market. So things like long-term outcomes, um, uh, potential differences in safety, or maybe even differences in effectiveness in small subgroups of the population that can't easily be enrolled in a traditional clinical trial. Uh, Outcomes that are just hard to track in uh, in a clinical trial setting, interactions with other medications. And that's all true. But I think some of the most important impacts early in bringing treatments to markets faster using real-world evidence have come from steps like being able to understand the natural history of a disease and event rates in, in particular subsets of the population. That enables the design of a much more efficient clinical trial. And I do want to emphasize that One key feature of a clinical trial that remains very important for for new drugs and devices is the ability to randomize patients to one treatment or another. Uh, A lot of people view the size of real-world evidence populations as being um, very useful, and it is for for many purposes. But the fact is that for most um, health outcomes, there are a lot of things that influence it besides the treatment itself. And so one of the big challenges in real-world evidence is how do we move trials into a more 
you know, real world setting, um, not necessarily in traditional, very costly, um, well managed clinical trial models, but real world settings while still having confidence that it's the treatment and not something else, uh, other the, treatments the patient the are getting. The treatment delivery other, or the treatment pathway. Exactly. Right. All these kinds of things that clinical trials try very hard to standardize to isolate the effect of that treatment. Um, so there's still work to be done on that front. But in the meantime, uh, understanding patient populations, event rates, helping to design clinical trials, helping to learn more evidence beyond uh, just the, the basic safety and effectiveness that a product comes to market with in subgroups of patients as we head into an era of personalized medicine, all of that really adds to value. This takes us really well to the next question I have, which is around Commissioner Gottlieb recommending pragmatic clinical trial designs. What's your opinion of pragmatic clinical trials from the Duke perspective, and what do you think are their possible applications? What are their barriers? Right. Yeah, now? I think there's a, a lot of promise, and I would like to, um, Dwayne, give a little bit of a plug to an organization called the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, which is another initiative based out of Duke. I have the privilege of working with them that is really focused on what the future of much more efficient and effective clinical trials should look like. And I think when um, a lot of people use pragmatic trials uh, uh, language in different ways, I think what uh, uh, Scott Gottlieb is talking about in that context is preserving that capacity to learn if a treatment's really working or not. So something like randomization and and a good enough understanding of the other treatments and conditions in which uh, patients in these real-world settings are are, are getting their care so that you can be confident. That's really the treatment that it's making the difference, uh, but doing it in a way that's that's much more out there in the real world and reflective of um, modern technology. So among the projects that the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative has undertaken have been guidance and recommendations related to conducting uh, trials using digital data collected directly from patients. So that's a, that's a way of bringing costs down and getting the trials done kind of out in the world. Uh, ways of uh, standardizing data in pragmatic uh, trial context so that you can be confident that it's you know not something that you're missing about the the, the patients or, or the care that they're receiving rather than the uh, the, the treatment of interest uh, and other steps to, to really help advance the the, the capacity to conduct uh, pragmatic clinical trials this is also an area where another Duke related project the patient-centered outcomes research network a, a collaboration supported by PCORI involving a lot lot of uh, academic and, and other health systems uh, to develop, again, more, more standardized data, more well-controlled uh, conditions for doing pragmatic studies in the real world uh, is making some progress. So I think we've got a ways to go, but I definitely think that there's so much opportunity in the future uh, so long as we don't lose sight of uh, we really have to understand the data well, and we really have to understand if it's the treatment of interest and not something else that's accounting for the the differences and outcomes between patients in these real world settings. Obviously, no institution is is one person. And certainly a lot of these initiatives at the FDA level have been driven Mm -hmm. by Commissioner Gottlieb. You were a former commissioner. Your your colleague, Robert Califf, is a former commissioner. Mm -hmm. But certainly Commissioner Gottlieb has been very visionary pushing these things out into the open. What do you think is going to be the impact of his departure? 
I think he's leaving the agency in a much stronger place than uh, he found it. And that's part of, I think, of a general trend of, of um, increasing resources, increasing support, bipartisan support for the FDA, at the same time as its mission continues to get more and more complicated with more and more uh, uh, sophisticated, advanced uh, technologies involved. FDA uh, is not, FDA is much more than one person. Um, I think Scott would be the first person person to tell you that it's the career staff at the FDA who are dedicated to the mission and dedicated to finding ways to do their job better that makes the most difference. Um, Ned uh, Sharpless, who's been um, named the acting commissioner after Scott departs, I think is very much committed to these same themes around more efficient uh, clinical trial design, respect for the the science that guides uh, the agency activities, and respect for the, the professional staff there and supporting them in their work. So I, I don't see this as being an area where you'll see a lot of disruption. I, I think uh, the continuation of the clinical staff, the continued support for FDA through user fees and, and just in this year's budget proposal recently from President Trump, an increase in uh, appropriations to support the technical expertise at the agency. I think that all bodes very well for the future, and I think it bodes very well for a a lasting positive impact from Commissioner Gottlieb's tenure. You you talked about the complexity in these new emerging models. Duke Margolis, your center, published results of a survey in the American Journal of Managed Care that showed there have been 100 value-based agreements used between 2014 and 2017. Can you describe what a managed-based agreement is and why do you think you're seeing such high use? 100 is quite a lot. It it is a lot, and I think we're going to see a lot more. So the the value-based arrangements are, I think, partly a reflection of a general shift that's happening in our payment systems here in the United States and for that matter around the world away from paying for volume and and instead towards paying for combinations of treatments that really matter for the outcomes for uh, for, for patients and for keeping, you know, avoiding unnecessary health care costs. Back in the day when medical care consisted mainly of, you know, treatments you get in the hospital or the doctor's office, not treatments that you could get early on, maybe modify your genes or head off the progression of uh, cancer or uh, take other steps that would have a big long-term impact on health. In in those old days, fee-for-service might work. In this new era, uh, what people are most interested in is intercepting disease early, getting to personalized medicine where it's combinations of treatments that matter. And a lot of those treatments turn out to be things that we don't pay for very well under fee-for-service. Uh, some some of its sort of non-traditional approaches to care, like maybe it's uh, addressing a social driver of a patient's uh, poor health outcomes. And in the area of medical technology, having a fee-for-service treatment for, say, a gene therapy that is going to have effects uh, potentially years down the road that may not be fully understood in particular patients at the time the treatment is approved, that may get better over time as, as the technique for conducting the, the gene therapy or the CAR-T therapy improves. And you can see why there might be more pressure to like, okay, let's let's make sure we're really supporting using these treatments as effectively as possible and they do really deliver on their benefits 
in the patients who are receiving them. So we're seeing more interest in, in shifts to these models, both generally and for medical technologies that can do more than ever, but where, again, um, there, there, there are concerns about making sure we're spending our limited social resources as effectively as possible. That's what I think is driving these models. Many of them have not been publicized. I, I'd like to see you know, more transparency around the models. I'd like to see uh, more well-established approaches uh, around uh, collecting, uh, say, data on patients over time. You know, what really matters for patients is not just whether or not the, the treatment worked today, but uh, is it working next month, next year? And with better electronic data, better ways of engaging people directly in their care. You know, I talked before about you know, digital information. People can use their smartphones to mm-hmm. maybe report in on how their functional status is going, which would be good both for learning more about the technologies and for just making sure they're getting good right. good care, that's where we should be headed. And those are the kinds of models that the value-based payment approaches really support. There, there's really not a big place for them in traditional fee-for-service medicine. Yeah, I mean, Luca Pani in Italy, when he negotiated Glibera, the gene therapy, mm-hmm. he basically sent it up as a, a rental fee, yeah. uh, 100,000 euros a year, $120,000 roughly for yeah. every year you were healthy. Now, you did mention that a lot of these agreements are confidential, roughly 70 percent of them are non-disclosed. Do you think that that needs to be that way, just given the nature of insurance and disclosures and lawyers and the costs in healthcare? I, I think any you know, there's there's a lot of caution in healthcare and and a lot of concerns about giving up proprietary information. What I'd like to see happen over time is more of the competition, more of the attention around uh, proprietary um, you know, commercial confidential information. Focus on the treatments themselves, not the methods that are sure. being used to show whether or not they're effective. And we uh, here at uh, the, the Duke Margolis Center sponsor a number of collaborations between different stakeholders uh, involved in these issues. So certainly the the drug, gene therapy manufacturers, but also payers, PBMs, patient advocacy groups, providers, where there are just a a lot of different perspectives in the healthcare system that agree we need to move to something else. The problem is we haven't done this before, so many people are at the stage of – you know, negotiating these arrangements on a one-off basis using their own, you know, particular approaches and <laughs> tending to keep them, keep them confidential. Uh, we think a better approach is identifying what the best practices are in these new areas, standard ways of uh, collecting data, maybe more standard ways of setting up these contracts. We've got standard ways now of doing fee-for-service medicines with, you know, ICD. 10 codes and, sure. and so forth. We're not there yet for the, the value-based approaches where what really matters is understanding the needs of the patient and understanding what happens to their outcomes of interest. Uh, but we're getting there. And, and that's what a lot of our work is about. So I think you'll see that continue to evolve in the next few years. And again, the pressure to make these changes is just going to go up. You mentioned you know, gene therapy payments in, in Italy being tied to essentially outcomes over time rather than one big upfront payment for what 
many might regard as an uncertain long-term outcome. The gene therapies, the other curative or or potentially transformative treatments that are coming along, and there are a lot of them, I think are going to increase the the pressure to move in that direction, to pay for, as one of the the gene therapy manufacturers who works with us uh, on this project said, to to pay for better health over time, uh, not just to pay for a a technology, uh, whether or not it actually works. And and one of the other things that we're seeing um, sort of drifting from Europe to the United States is this idea of health technology assessment or HTA light, as it were. You're having more ISA reports being shown in evidence for part of the insurance negotiation, etc. Now, from a European perspective, patients, industry, and, and even some practitioners think, you know, that this actually HTA, there's a lot of data that says, yeah, it does restrict access and it slows mm-hmm. things down. It increases time to market, decreases access. And there's a growing, this growing chorus of voices in the U.S. feel that this would actually be beneficial here. What's your opinion about setting in some type of HTA system, which we're hearing is more and more of the discussions around the Medicare B&D reforms? What do you feel about well, that? Well, I, I have to say I am a big fan of better evidence. And I'm a big fan sure. of expert efforts to synthesize the data we have, the studies that we have, to, to reach some conclusions about effectiveness and costs in particular patients of, of one treatment approach versus another. Um, we don't have nearly as much evidence as, as we should to make those kinds of informed decisions. The, the major heart meetings just this past week had a study reported that fewer, uh, not more, but fewer guidelines for treating patients with heart disease over time are actually backed by good evidence. So we, we definitely need better evidence. I think what the challenge, what the, what the real fight about here isn't about developing better evidence, but but how you use it. And many of the HTAs in Europe uh, have been used to um, make decisions about overall kind of blanket access to a technology according to a particular cost-effectiveness standard. Uh, in the United States, uh, this country has particularly not taken that approach. I want to emphasize that, that doesn't mean that HTA isn't done or isn't used. Uh, we have a group here... Um, the Institute for uh, Comparative Effectiveness or or, or Clinical Effectiveness Research, uh, ICER, that is doing more and more work uh, in this area and that is used by payers and manufacturers to inform their decisions, sometimes in a a very collaborative um, joint process. So developing better evidence is good and having in the United States different payment options. Uh, This is a country that relies a lot on choice, not just one entity, especially one government entity making decisions for for, for everyone. I've seen some really innovative models in the private sector, uh, CVS, uh, uh, Cigna, now doing formularies where beneficiaries can have no or low out-of-pocket payments if they're using drugs that meet um, some of ICER's uh, um, reasonable, uh, what they view as reasonable cost-effectiveness standards. I think that is a great option to have. It doesn't work for all Americans, uh, and we haven't yet perfected the, the way of integrating better evidence and, and, and coverage design, but uh, I'm glad that there's work going along in that better evidence direction. Where I think we really need to do more, though, it's back in what we were talking about previously around improving the quality of the evidence. Um, What an outcome-based 
payment or a value-based payment arrangement can do for you is actually split the difference. If you've got payers on the one hand saying that, well, we're not sure that this treatment is really going to be as beneficial as you say, and in, in, as a manufacturer says in this particular patient group, the manufacturer thinks quite, you know, has, has much more confidence in their technology. Well, that's a good place for an outcome-based contract where collect the data, see how the patients actually do, and make the payments uh, more related to actually getting better outcomes in practice. We have a lot of treatments available today that are really, really cost-effective. Generic statins, uh, uh, generic blood pressure medications, and yet half the people in this country who would benefit those treatments aren't getting them. And it's not simply an issue of cost or somebody having done the cost-effectiveness analysis. It's an issue of we don't have a healthcare system that really promotes value. So instead, we're trying to put these patches on, like uh, restrict access broadly to treatments that are probably very beneficial for certain patients, rather than figuring out, you know, how do we get to a truly personalized healthcare system that gets everybody uh, treated with the medications and other technologies that are beneficial for them. We've got a long way to go in that, and I don't think doing HTA with existing data by itself and existing fee-for-service payment mechanisms is going to solve those problems. No, because essentially we need to, one's an efficacy model and one's an effectiveness model, and so we're sort of stuck between a a rock and a hard place right now. That's right, but but let's move beyond that. (laughs) Let's get at at both uh, better evidence on efficacy and find better ways to apply that evidence till we get to, so we get to effectiveness. And, and another blunt instrument that's been rolled out then, not to belittle a, a tortuous point here, but you know the IPI proposal of HHS, Health and Human Services Secretary Azar, is looking at a global benchmark average plus a small markup of 26%. Now, the opinion of HHS is this will reduce price and this will be really great and wonderful and it'll force other countries to raise their pricing and take some of the cost off the backs of the American taxpayer – which, according to data, is actually, yes, the U.S. is subsidizing the global market. This is a truism. However, we've done some work, and we think, and looking at some of the drugs that are listed in the uh, IQVIA study, you know, you run that through the balance sheet, it's not going to impact, according to what the government said, 1%. It's going to impact their R&D by about 30%. Uh, So it could be very devastating to R&D. What's your opinion of these sort of non-market-based price ceiling approaches, these very top-down approach to market. Is this an effective way, Mark, to go forward? <laughs> well, we've uh, done, the work that we've done at the center in this area has really been about, you know, number one, recognizing that there are inequities in, in global pricing, sure. and those are, as healthcare costs keep rising, drug costs keep rising in particular, increasingly and understandably frustrating for Americans, and just kind of a reminder that the current system that we have for payment based on volume is just not sustainable. That We have to, to do more to help Americans get better health at a lower cost. It is just not right that you know, no matter what you do um, with you know, high deductible plans and high out-of-pocket costs, uh, if you have a serious illness, you are going to be paying a lot of money every year. That's not what value is about. Um, there, there, there are ways to uh, improve care, get costs down for people with serious illnesses, and there ought to be ways 
ways for them to share in the savings. So that gets back to some of the more fundamental reforms that, that I was talking about earlier. In uh, the Medicare Part B drug pricing, which is where this model would apply, actually Medicare hasn't been using some competitive approaches that have worked in Medicare Part D and in commercial plans, uh, things like um, formulary models. Again, not one set by the government, but one where people have a choice and right. some competition, um, some innovations in, in uh, benefit design that have led to much lower price differentials, not for the drugs in Part B, but for drugs that are covered under these other mechanisms. That seems like uh, an approach that would be more consistent with um, what the administration has said they want to do in, in healthcare in general, which is move more towards value and encourage um, competitive approaches to get prices down rather than um, you know, set, uh, set regulatory prices. That said, I totally appreciate the fact that we haven't solved this problem yet and that the pressure to do something about it, uh, like the government uh, is proposing with IPI, that pressure is not going to go away uh, until somebody comes up with a better solution. The status quo is is definitely not sustainable. If you had your opportunity right now to make one change, Mark, um, to improve the system, what would you like to do? I don't know. There's one, <laughs> Dwayne. It's uh, magic such wand. A big system, Harry but, Potter's wand. Grab but it down boy, I, I'd <laughs> sure like to put more data and capacity for choosing well in the hands of patients, especially patients with serious illnesses. You know, right? There's been a lot of talk about the need for more transparency and better evidence, and I think the people who could benefit the most from that, some of these people who are just talking about who are paying like you know, thousands of dollars out of pocket yeah. under medical cares drug coverage for you know, life-saving treatments that they need. Well, if they had access to, a, a, say, a cancer center that was using, that they knew was using uh, drugs really effectively, that was also redesigning care in a way that kept in touch with them by their smartphone. So if they had a problem or having some nausea or other issues from their disease, they would be notified early. They wouldn't have to show up to the emergency room and get them into the hospital and have all the thousands of dollars in costs associated with that. They'd have uh, well-coordinated care with their uh, physician team so that everybody would know the treatments that they wanted and and could help make sure they get it. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that that models like this, um, care models like this, especially for complex and vulnerable patients cost much less money but we don't really have a system that lets people know where they can go to get that care and that gives them the the savings that go along with it and so we just stick them with thousands of dollars and out-of-pocket costs uh, uh, month after month after month on top of having a very serious illness that's not getting very well coordinated care so it's not one change but it's really about a systemic change a systemic change that puts people much more in control and aware of the of the care that they're getting and gives them options for this care is absolutely achievable much less expensive care at a lower cost where they get the savings transparency on centers to excellence sounds fantastic and evidence yeah. and it's going to be a political nightmare <laughs> <laughs> well i i'm an, i'm a, maybe an over too much of an optimist but i do see progress in this sure. in this direction we're changing payment systems in the u.s we're innovating more efficiently uh we're Gonna, we're going to get to better health care over the next decade. We're going to cure a lot more people. Big changes coming in cancer care, uh, in genetic disorders, uh, hopefully others as well. Uh, we just need to make sure our policies and our health care delivery systems keep up with that. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Great talking with you.
This Better Science, Better Health podcast is made possible with the generous support of the American Chamber of Commerce's Global Innovation Policy Center, BIO, and Gilead. Thank you.